foundation that we have comes from you, the refuge that we can find in Christ. We know that apart from him, we would be doomed. And we thank you that our salvation depends 0% on us and 100% on his finished work. And so we lean hard on him and uh, ask for your strength tonight as we think about how to live in a world that is opposed to you and a world that is opposed to us. And uh, give us strength and wisdom and understanding, application, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm number 14. Sorry, that was me. One of the great values of the Psalms is that we often don't know the situation or the specific situation in which the uh, psalmist has found himself. In fact, there are very few psalms that give us any background. So a lot of times what you're going to find with commentaries or even when I preach these psalms, just guesswork going on as far as the background. You know, David, maybe when he was running from Absalom, not sure. Sometimes the superscription right below the psalm number will tell you a little bit about it. But but in most cases, probably 90% of the psalms that we have don't tell us specifically where they come from. And um, and many times, or maybe occasionally, I guess, we don't even know the author. And the reason that, that that is actually valuable for us, that we know little information about the background of these psalms, is that the psalms then become generic enough so that, that we can apply them to our era or any era. You know, you, you can read through one of the psalms and it could apply to a Jew in exile. You know, wondering when God would allow them to come back to the land that He had promised. Or a Jew waiting for Christ. Or a Gentile in the early church. Or an African Christian in the 21st century. Or an American in the 21st century. Right? We, we, can, we can relate with Psalms. And that's why I think the Psalms are so widely treasured among believers. Because we can relate to them. They're generic enough that, that we can put ourselves in them and and sense that they're talking about us. The book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible and the New Testament authors quote it more often than any other. And many of the quotations have to do with prophetic issues, but others are simply quotations that prove God's greatness or the sinfulness of man. They, They prove theological points. One of those points we'll see here tonight. Here in Psalm 14, we find a psalm that's quoted by Paul. Not all of it, but part of it is quoted by Paul. And it's also a psalm that's meant to encourage us when we face opposition from our enemies. And so we need to uh, consider what God has for us tonight. So let me read, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is His refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores His captive people. 
Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. This psalm is meant to encourage us when we face when we face opposition. And I think the point of it is that we as Christians or believers, say it more generally, should not be discouraged because God knows about the wicked and He will deal with the wicked. God knows about the wicked and He will deal with the wicked. The first part of the psalm, verses 1-6, through six, are really just statement about what's happening, the, the opposition that's happening and how God views it. And then verse 7 is the prayer by the psalmist David here. Um, and that is that salvation would come to Israel. And I think we can uh, helpfully pull out three main points from the text based on what David, I think, is trying to say here. First, from the perspective of the atheist, God does not exist. From the perspective of the atheist, God does not exist. Verse 1. See that at the very beginning. He says, in his heart, there is no God. Isn't it interesting that the Bible doesn't make a proof for God? doesn't lay out ten proofs for why we know God exists. It simply begins with, in the beginning, God. It assumes that everyone knows that God exists. And, in fact, the reason that the Scriptures assume it is because everyone does know that God exists. That's what Romans 1 tells us. The Bible doesn't address atheism head-on. That is, you know, we need to attack this doctrine and defend our doctrine of the true and living God. It doesn't do that at all. The only thing it attacks is how foolish atheism really is. And when I say atheism, I'm not talking about a, a in a theological sense. I'm talking about a practical sense. Because theologically, everyone knows there is a God. There's no such thing as a true atheist. There's only a practical atheist. One who lives as if there is no God. And so that's what the Scriptures do. It calls out those who claim that there is no God. That's a key distinction. It's not that there isn't no God. There isn't a God for that person. It is that there is a God, but they claim that there is no God. Look at chapter 10, or Psalm number 10, verse 4. The wickedness, we saw this a few weeks ago, and the wickedness and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All his thoughts are... There is no God. So here it's in his mind. He's thinking this way. He, he, he loves his pride, his arrogance, his, his evil schemes. They all come because he's thinking in his mind, there is no God. And back to Psalm number 14, verse 1, he has said in his heart, same idea, at the center of who he is, he makes this claim, there is no God. You see, the fool is the one who thinks he is accountable to no one. There is no God who's going to hold me to account. I will live my godless life as if I'm living in a world that has no God. And so there's a great arrogance in the claim of the wicked. They are wicked in their doctrine. They make this claim, there is no God. And their wicked character is confirmed in their deeds. The second part of verse 1. The fool's practice. The Lord is... Uh, I'm sorry. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. So the fool's godless thinking, there is no God, 
results in the fool's godless living, doesn't it? Because he makes this claim there is no God, now the response is they are corrupt. These fools are corrupt. They commit abominable deeds. And that's not surprising. Jesus says the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So if his heart is full of this idea that God doesn't exist, then of course his actions and his words are going to, to follow suit. The fool is corrupt. He's abominable. And he's not alone. There are many just like him. He's a blind man. He claims that God doesn't exist. He's a blind man spiritually. It's, it's like the blind man who, who tries to make the claim that the light of the sun does not exist because he's never seen it. You know, I, I can't have a, a valid proof for the sun, and so I can't buy that the sun exists. But that doesn't change the fact that the sun rises every morning and wakes that blind man up with the warmth of its heat. And the blind man's denial of the sun doesn't change the fact that the sun does exist. And it doesn't change the fact that that blind man would not exist without the sun. This is the fool. He makes this claim, there's no God. I can live however I want. And all the while, he's borrowing from the mercies of God every morning by waking up with another breath, by doing all his acts of evil on borrowed time and borrowed grace. From the perspective of the atheist, number one, God does not exist. Second main point I think we see here in verses 2-5 through is that from the perspective of God, the atheist is a fool. We already saw that here in the beginning of verse 1. The fool has said, this is obviously uh, God's verdict of the fool, uh, of the person who says there's no God. Well, you're a fool. It's like the the, the blind man who says there's no sun. The sun's thinking, well, there's no blind man. Or, or you blind man, you are a fool. God's evaluation of the fool is that God's evaluation of this person who thinks there's no God is that he is a fool. Notice that God is not aloof. He's not unaware of what's going on among the wicked, among those practical atheists. Verse 2, The Lord has looked down. He has gazed from the heavens upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. God is not aloof like the God of the deists. You know the deist God? The deist God is the one who says, yes, God created the world. He set it in motion and He let it go. And He's just kind of sitting back there, not doing anything, not involved, not, not imminent. He's simply transcendent. He's hands-off. He's powerful. He's great. He's done great things, but he ha- He's not interacting in the world. And that's not our God. He knows what's going on and He cares. And this verse tells us He looks down. He gazes on what's happening. This careful look reminds me of the Tower of Babel. When they're busy doing all their work to try to build this tower to say, hey, we are, we are our own people. We can, be, we can have our own God. We can be our own God. God looks down and sees the utter corruption of the people. Look at specifically what God is looking for at the end of verse 2. To see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. 
When God looks down, what is it that His all-seeing eyes find? Does He find anyone who is righteous? Anyone who is without sin? And the answer comes in verse 3. And it's a resounding no. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. God finds in His search of the earth that there is not one person who's do, who, who does good. And this is consistent with the end of verse 1. Remember, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. And then in verses 2 and 3, He uses the words all and none or no one. The Lord has looked down, verse 2, upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand or seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. So in summary, the foolish atheist is a wicked man who is totally depraved. He can do nothing to please God. So from the perspective of the atheist, God does not exist. From the perspective of God, the atheist is a fool. See first God's evaluation of the fool and then secondly, under this second main point, the destiny of the fool or the fate of the fool. And that is judgment. Verses 4 and 5. There's a question here in verse 4. It says, Do all the workers of the wickedness not know who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? It's not explicitly clear who's speaking here. right? It sounds like God's looking down and then it could be that God's asking the question. Right? He's looking down to see if He sees anybody that seeks Him and there's no one. And then it's like He asks the question, Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up My people, God's saying, as they eat bread and do not call upon Me, the Lord? It could be that. But notice um, the other possibility is that David could be asking this question. And in that case, he'd be saying, do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up My people? In this case, David's talking about the same people as God would be talking about, right? People of Israel. Who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Now, if you look in the New American Standard you can get a clue as to what the New American Standard translators thought that the answer was. What do you think the New American Standard translators think? David, right, David or some righteous Jew. Okay, not, not, maybe not David, but, but a righteous Jew is making this comment. Why do you say that? Yeah, if you look at my in the middle of the verse, it's a lowercase m. And, and if you know uh, how the New American Standard translates, they always do a capital pronoun when it's talking about God. Okay, So in this case, they're saying this doesn't sound like God speaking. And I actually would agree with them here. And the reason for that is because of the end of verse 4, the end of the question. Because if it were God speaking, we would expect Him to say, and do not call upon Me. But it says the, 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 the speaker here says, and do not call upon the Lord. That would make more sense coming from David or from a righteous Jew. But either way, the point is still the same. The point is that the people of Israel are being devoured. And do these wicked people not know what's going on in this devouring? I think David here is amazed that the wicked are blinded to their own sin. That they don't even realize the heinousness of their devouring of their people. Notice how it's described. 
they eat up my people as they eat bread. So, so it pictures almost a nonchalant kind of eating. Maybe a ravenous or a callous type of eating. That, that they would eat up people. And I don't think it's talking about cannibalism. I think it's talking about destroying people. God's people. That is, that the devouring has, some, has become so normal to the wicked that it is as commonplace as them taking a bite of food. They've been so callous to their indifference of righteous people that they devour the righteous without even thinking about the vileness or the consequences of their evil. That's how vile they are. It's, it, David says, Do you not know? You're eating up righteous people. You're devouring God's people as if you're just taking in a piece of bread. Notice they also have no reference for God. At the end of the verse, he says, And they do not call upon the Lord. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? And do, and do they not call upon the Lord? Or, or do they call upon the Lord? They do not. It could be that they don't call out to Him in prayer, but more likely it's talking about uh, a more general idea. They have no spiritual understanding. They have no reverence for God, no respect for God, no respect for God's Word. And then the result is judgment. Right? These wicked people are so vile, so blinded to their own sin that God will come down in judgment on them. Verse 5, There they are in great dread. The wicked are going to find themselves on the wrong side of the war. The idea of great dread here is, is the sudden terror. They will be terrified with Literally, this is how the, the uh, phrase goes there in verse 5. They will be terrified with great terror. It's coming. The wicked may seem like got everything buttoned up and no judgment now. Seem to be okay with doing the sins that they enjoy. But God's saying, there's through, through David here, He's saying there will be great terror coming and they will be terrified. They will soon find out that the God that they have been denying in their words and in their actions will come to judge them and He will vindicate those who acknowledge Him. He will vindicate those people that the wicked were devouring. And at that point, it will be too late for the wicked to turn and repent. So, from the perspective of the atheist, God does not exist. Secondly, from the perspective of God, the atheist is a fool. He's going to receive judgment. And so, what does that mean for us? That means, here's the third point, don't be discouraged. As a believer, we are not to be discouraged. End of verse 5 through verse 7. Here is the encouragement for us, for the righteous. Because that's what this psalm is about. It's not about, you know, I really hope that this psalm makes it out to these wicked people who are blind and don't want to hear from God. They're not... They're not in the business of wanting to hear from God. This psalm is not for the wicked. This is for the righteous. This is for you and me. And the purpose of it is to encourage us that we should not be discouraged, first of all, because of the judgment of the wicked that we just saw in verse 5. They are going to have come on them a, a, a terrifying great terror. They are going to be terrified with great terror. A sudden 
a sudden um, dread will come upon them. So, so here's the first reason why we shouldn't be discouraged when we are opposed by the wicked because judgment's coming on the wicked. God has not forgotten about them. He will not let them escape from judgment. Secondly, we should not be discouraged because God is on our side. Verses 5 and 6. So first, judgment is coming. Second, God is on our side. We should not be discouraged because God is on our side. This righteous generation that David is referring to here as being devoured by the wicked is going to be protected by God. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go without any pain. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go without death. They very well may have their lives end after a long period of torture and then death. That's not the kind of protection I'm talking about, but I'm talking about eternal protection. God will bring about for them eternal protection. Look at the end of verse 2. For God is with the righteous generation. It may seem that you are all alone and even abandoned by God, but God has not forgotten you. He allows persecution to come at the hands of God deniers for a time, but He will deal with them eventually. And He will deal with them surely. And He will vindicate you. So we should not be discouraged because God is on our side. In verse 6, David talks a little bit more about the wicked here. He says, You wicked would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is His refuge. So he's saying, you atheist fools, you'll put to shame the plans of the afflicted. All these people that you're troubling, they have plans for good. And and you're trying to put them to death. You're trying to, to stop all their plans. Put them to shame. But you'll soon find out that you are on the wrong side of the battle. That the Lord is on their side. In other words, the wicked, for a time... Ignore the warning of God, which says, Stop denying me. And stop mistreating my righteous ones. But the wicked reject that warning, don't they? And they will soon find that they are not only opposing we who are afflicted by them, but they are actually opposing the God of those afflicted people as well. And so we have great reason to be encouraged, even at the hands of defeat. And that is that God is on our side. Take confidence in the fact that God is your refuge. That's what the end of verse 6 says. The Lord is His refuge. The the refuge of the afflicted. Be confident of that, most importantly, during the times of opposition. Do, Do you feel opposition coming from the wicked? I mean, of course... It may not come in the form of physical persecution, but it could come in the form of slander. It could come in the form of of uh, ostracized, ostracized, being ostracized. Okay, maybe you're put off a little bit by some family members or some friends or some neighbors because they know who you serve. They know your standards. Don't be discouraged. God will bring them to justice. God will bring you to justice. That is, 
He will bring the righteous to justice. He will bring about what He has promised to them. And then in verse 7, we see instead of being discouraged, we should pray for God's final deliverance. Instead of being discouraged, we should pray for God's final deliverance. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When would salvation come out of Zion? In, let's say, in biblical history, and then let's say in all of history. When would salvation come out of Zion? Kind of a trick question. Okay? That's the bigger answer. The, the more, maybe the narrower answer is when Jesus came the first time. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, I think what this is talking about, the, the big picture here is that salvation is going to come when Jesus reigns on the throne in Zion. He will rule with the rod of iron over a world of peace. And so I think what David here is praying, and it's a prayer that fits for us as well, is an end times kind of prayer. It's a prayer of confidence that God's universal program will come to, come to pass. That Jesus will win. You know, we pray for peace in Israel, but peace won't come to Israel until this happens. When Jesus reigns. When, when salvation comes out of Zion. Look at the second part of verse 7. When the Lord restores His captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. This kind of further clarifies the timing of salvation coming out of Zion. But here, captive is not talking about the time in which Israel is in exile. We would think, okay, the time of captivity is the time of Israel's exile. So 722 B.C. to whenever they, they finally got out in the 500s or 400s or whenever it was. This is David writing a psalm. And he wasn't in exile. So why would he be writing a psalm about exile? No, David is writing about the end times. I think this psalm was written by David, written generically enough, like I said at the beginning, in order to apply to people who were in exile. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. They're far away from Zion at the point that they're in captivity, right? Oh, that salvation would come from there. But it also could apply to the dispersed Jews who are far away from Jerusalem and they haven't received their Messiah, or even after the Messiah comes, they haven't received final salvation, they haven't received the land. And I think it can apply to us because it's talking about that future millennial kingdom which is followed by the eternal state where Christ will reign, where, where Christ will restore His people to victory, where we will join with Jacob and Israel in rejoicing that God has finally brought salvation from Zion. He's brought it to Israel. He's fulfilled His promise about the land and the rest. And so this is a prayer, I think, for all of us to pray for God's final deliverance. So instead of being discouraged, we should pray for God's final deliverance. So two, two implications that we can draw out of our study from Psalm 14. Number one, if you can be counted as wicked... That is, if you're counted among the number in verses 2 and 3, if you can be counted as wicked, then you had better lean hard on Christ. 
you can be counted as wicked, then you'd better lean hard on Christ. Now, maybe you're thinking as you're reading through this passage, particularly, that this universal corruption, particularly verse 3, they have all turned aside. They've all become corrupt. corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. If you're thinking carefully, you're thinking that that's from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. He quoted from this very text. And he did it in order to describe the universal depravity That is that all mankind are by their very nature and their actions sinners. And so, as you're thinking about that, thinking, well, if all are corrupt, if God looks down from the heavens and He looks down on mankind and He sees no one who is righteous, not even one, then we have to ask, where are the godly and how can a person be godly? And the truth is that we do find ourselves in this category. We are part of that universal group of people who are depraved and and who are opposed to God. But then God does something, doesn't He? He makes us into a new creation. He puts the old things away and behold, new things have come. That is, those who know they are part of that group of the wicked and they acknowledge their deficiency before the Holy God and trust in His promise as to how we can pull away from that wickedness are the ones who are justified by grace. Those are the godly. Those are the righteous. And we know from the rest of the Scripture that this corruption does not have to be permanent, right? Because the writer of the Psalms is someone who's not eternally corrupted by that sin, is he? In fact, he's now enjoying a life without sin and will for all of eternity. It's David. He's speaking as a person, as he's writing this very psalm, as a person who's been freed from that corruption, while at the same time recognizing that he was once under the wrath of God. So, so yes, when we read through verses 1 through 3, we see, you know, we fit into this category in many ways. But but the fact that someone would read and believe this psalm suggests that there is another group of people. Not everyone is doomed to corruption and judgment. There's another group of people that that have an opportunity to turn. That, that is, there's another group of people in contrast to the atheist fool, and that is the righteous. And we know, the Holy Spirit has taught us that that we can be described as corrupt as well. And that's why we need an alien righteousness. That's why we need an adequate atonement that will fully cover our sins. And friends, that's exactly what we have in Jesus. And so don't lean on your own righteousness. Lean on Jesus because full atonement and perfect righteousness can only be found in Him. So if you see yourself as one of the wicked, then lean hard on Christ because you have nothing on your own to come to God. Because by our very nature, we want to make that same claim that the atheist fool does, which is, I want to live my life as if there is no God. So if you find yourself identifying with the category of the wicked, lean hard on Christ. Second implication, and I think this is the main point of the text. When you're opposed by the wicked, call out to God. When you're opposed by the wicked... Call out to God. 
This is how I would summarize the psalm. If I were to paraphrase it, this is how I would do it. The wicked are clueless. They don't see the big picture. How many times will they continue to torment the righteous? Do they they not know that the Lord is on the side of the righteous? Now God, come and show them who you are. Show the wicked who you are. This psalm defines for us what foolishness is in the eyes of God. And it is its failure to acknowledge God in trustful obedience. Mark Furtado gives a helpful explanation of this. He says, The foolishness in the eyes of God is failure to acknowledge God in trustful obedience. Therefore, the opposite of foolishness is wisdom. And wisdom is acknowledging God in trustful obedience. That's where we come to be on God's side. That's where God pours out His grace on us. When we come to acknowledge Him in trustful obedience. And the, the, the best way for us to display that is by leaning on God, depending on God through prayer. God, the wicked are opposed to me. They're all standing against me, but I know that you're on my side. So you come. Show the wicked who you are. Show them that, that, that you are true, that you are right, that you exist. And sometimes God does that by means of judgment, and other times He does that through means of mercy. That is, He shows them who He is, the way He showed us who He was. He gave us time to repent. He showed us the means to turn in salvation to Jesus Christ. But I think that's a good prayer to pray, the same as David. Oh, that salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. Any questions or comments on Psalm 14? Bob. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I haven't looked at that I, I when I was um, studying almost all the commentaries pointed that out um, yeah verse yeah so Psalm 53 is very similar yeah and, and one of the commentators say said the point of Psalm 14 is to encourage believers and then the point of Psalm 53 is to show the foolishness of the, the wicked or to uh, warn, I should say, warn the wicked. So so this one here that we're looking at, Psalm 14, is more for an encouragement. Listen, God will be your refuge. And Psalm 53, and again, I haven't, I haven't looked into that too deeply, but um, other than what I just told you. So, All right, any other thoughts or questions? All right, next week is Psalm number 15. And it's just a short six verses, I think. Five verses, yeah. But, but it's really helpful. It answers the question there. Oh, Lord, may, who may abide in your tent? Who, who can come into the presence of God? It's a good question to ask. Who can stay in God's presence? And then it answers it, too, at the, the rest of the psalm. It's really helpful.